is Thursday, October 26th, 2017, time for episode 33 of the Barnhart Podcast. The war on marriage has been effect since the days of St. John the Baptist, but the war kicked into a higher gear after the Protestant Revolution with the increase in religious and state-sanctioned divorce. In the Catholic Church since the 1960s, a similar attack on marriage has been taking place with a massive upswing in annulments, especially in the United States. In the early 1960s, about 300 declarations of nullity were issued, but in the early 1990s, the annual figure had grown to over 60,000. According to the 2007 Statistical Yearbook of the Church, which was published by the Vatican Secretary of State, the United States, which has only 6% of the world's Catholics, accounted for 60% of the Church's annulments. And that brings us to this episode's topic, the annulment crisis in the Church. Well, it's been quite a week. Um... I wrote a piece that basically just laid out that that if you are divorced, well, if you're civilly divorced, that civil divorce is a fiction and you're done romancing. And that is what nobody, even the most trad of, of trad priests, a trad laity, will not touch this, will not say it. And some of them right now are are mad at me because they're absolutely convinced that because I say things like this, that I'm just I'm just driving people away. I'm driving people away. And um, I, I'm sorry, but my email box over the past uh, several days since since that piece went up Been is absolutely quiet. Uh, no, it's been a handful of um, you're awful, you're mean, and then, you know, the 4,000 word screed in all caps outlining every single nasty word, deed, and thought of somebody's, of somebody's um, quote unquote ex-spouse. And how dare you suggest that I should, I should still consider myself married to such a, hor- a horrible, terrible person, blah, 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 blah. Uh, there, there's only been like a handful of those. Everything else has been, thank you for saying this. This, this was just music to my ears. Would that it were that anyone ever would say something like this. Because like I said, guys, even even the tradiest of trad priests, they will not touch this. They don't want to tell people who are, you know, in their 20s, 30s, 40s, look, I'm really sorry that you made this mistake that you made. And I'm really sorry that you screwed your own life up by marrying someone who turned out to be a jerk or marrying someone who you knew darn good and well was a jerk and now you want out of it and and you want to get back on the dating scene and you don't want to face the fact that you are now called to live a life of perfect chastity. That is, no dating, no romancing, certainly no quote-unquote remarriage you're done. You're done. If you have married someone and then either they've abandoned you or you've abandoned them, it it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's the other spouse who, who did all kinds of unjust things to you and abandoned you. It doesn't matter if you are, let's face it, probably almost always a man and you're having to pay alimony payments to this person. It doesn't matter if they stole half of your marital estate when they abandoned you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't matter if your abandoning spouse has now gone on to quote unquote remarry. 
and you're having to subsidize the life of not only your abandoning spouse, but the person that your abandoning spouse has entered into a, a, a basically a bigamous, completely adulterous faux marriage with. If you are financially supporting another man in addition to your abandoning wife, you still, you still are bound to honor your your marital vows. You are still married to your spouse, even though they've abandoned you and done all of this stuff and you're done. You can't date. You can't have any more romantic relationships and this is this is what nobody wants to say it's what nobody has the guts to look people in the face and tell them and and it's all a function it seems to me of of narcissism of effeminacy um and and to some extent of sloth and super nerd were kind super nerd and i were kind of discussing this in the in the little pre-chat before the show about what all this means is that you know the narcissism it's all about me it's me 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 there is no concept understanding or or willingness to admit that this this institution of marriage this sacrament of marriage we don't even have to we don't even have to put the word sacramental in front of it because there are natural marriages between pagans, between absolutely anyone. Every civilization on the surface of this planet has a form of marriage in the deepest, darkest jungles of Papua New Guinea. There is a form of marriage among those people in in the Amazon River Basin. There is a form of river. Uh, there is a form of marriage among those people. It exists everywhere because it's a part of the nat. It's a domain of the natural law. Human civilization is built is built upon this foundation of marriage. For the procreation and raising of children, first and foremost, that is why it is just this this utterly essential foundation upon which all human society is built. People today in their narcissism cannot comprehend the fact that the the fact that marriage is the is the foundation of human civilization and thus must be protected at all costs means that if they screw up and and their marriage quote unquote falls apart in whatever sense or in whatever way that they are expected then in order to maintain the sanctity and the strength of this civilizational foundation of marriage that you have to honor marriage itself and you cannot just be uh, an adulterer or a bit or a, or a quote-unquote legalized bigamist because your entire civilization will fall apart everyone basically had an innate understanding of this up until really about 50 years ago now it started to fall apart obviously about a hundred years ago in fact almost exactly a hundred years ago because as I stated in my piece who what was the first what was the first uh, legalization of of no-fault divorce it was 
immediately, like eight weeks after the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. So the Bolshevik Revolution happens in October of 1917, exactly 100 years ago right now. And then within a matter of weeks, one of the very first things that they did was to, quote unquote, legalize no-fault divorce because they're communists and it's an evil paradigm and the breakdown of the family is utterly essential to this entire communist project. Um, And so that's the origins of it. That is one of the primary things that the Blessed Virgin was talking about at Fatima when she said the heirs of Russia will spread all over the world. It was within a matter of weeks after she said that, that, you know, it, it, it literally was on the books in the newly formed Soviet Union, no fault divorce. And now it's just it's become so common. And, you know, in the in the first 50 years, let's call it the first half of the 20th century. Who got the ball rolling with all this? How did it how did it start to manifest? Well, it started to manifest largely um, in Hollywood. You would you would start seeing in the 1930s reports of Hollywood stars getting divorces. Um, and then by the time you get to the, the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, then you have people like Elizabeth Taylor, who infamously had eight was was, quote unquote, married eight times. And this this all fed into the normalization of this. But even as late as the uh, 1970s and even into the 1980s, divorce was still there was still enough of a remnant that it was looked on as a shameful thing. The kids in the school whose parents were divorced tended to be the quote unquote trashier kids and the the kids from you know, the allegedly the better families and the better households had intact uh, mothers and fathers. It was it was a shameful thing for people to get divorced up into the 1980s. It was only into the 80s and 90s that it just became I mean, it's just now I suppose it's probably by the time kids certainly get to high school, if their parents are still together, it's like you know, rare, I I would have to think by now. And there's certainly no stigma, no shame at all attached with divorce in any way. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been, it's a, it's a huge question. It is not being dealt with even remotely close to the proper way telling people the truth about this and about the fact that marriage is indissoluble and that the vast, vast, vast majority of marriages are in fact valid and thus indissoluble. And so if if you're going to do this, if you're going to get civilly divorced, you, you need to understand that you are done on the romancing scene. Um, that, that would be, of course, and a lot goes without saying here, but that would go until one of the spouses dies. Um, but then you, you have to be very careful because then if you start thinking and hoping that your, your spouse dies, that, that is a, that's a sin. That's a terrible sin 
in and of itself. And so the whole thing is just is just a huge mess. And what I've noticed um, in in the feedback, even the feedback that is positive and is on side and says, thank you very much for writing what you wrote, you can tell that people still do not understand clearly. They don't comprehend what what annulment is. Um, you can tell by how things are phrased. There is still a thought that what annulment is, is that two people were married and then ceased to be married. And that an annulment is a declaration that people have ceased to be married. And that is wrong. That is absolutely, positively incorrect. And you have to get your head around this because this precision is just enormous. A declaration of nullity means that two people were never married, that Jesus, Jesus did not come to the wedding. He, he might've come down on the altar. If it was a, if it, if it was a mass, he came down on the altar when the Eucharist was confected, but he did not, he did not come and participate in you and your putative spouse being joined in holy matrimony. For example, let's just take it to an extreme and make it simple. If, if a man attempts to marry his half sister, Jesus ain't coming to the wedding, okay? That's just, it, it ain't happening. That it, Christ would never, ever, ever, ever join a, a brother and half-sister in marriage. It's, it's not going to happen. Um, so you can tell, though, by the way people write and the way people speak, um, using phrases like, get an annulment, um, the marriage was annulled. That is, those forms are technically incorrect. The proper form is that a person um, ha- had a, a, an invalid marriage and they were given a declaration of nullity. The church is not causing any ontological change to take place. The church is not issuing a document that causes people who were at some point in the past married to each other to no longer be married to each other. The church does not have the power to do that. It does not have the power to do that. All the church can do is that if in these extremely rare circumstances, two people come together um, and for whatever reason, from day one, from from the very, 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 very beginning, Christ did not come to the wedding and join the two people together for whatever reason, and they were never married to start with. The church can do an investigation, look at the situation, and say, like, let's take, for example, in this day and age of um, all of these sperm donors and everything like this, right? Which, again, that's a, that's a mortal sin, all of that garbage and baloney. I saw a a news story last week or the week before about some sperm donor guy who has, you know, 20 some odd children and they all got together and reunited and had a, had a reunion. And there's like 20 some of these kids and they're all half siblings to each other. Is it conceivably possible that a boy and a girl of, of this sperm donor man could have at some point met each other, fallen in love, and then 
attempted to marry. Yes, this is something that's going to, it, it's going to start happening. It's going to start popping up more and more and more as these mortally sinful reproductive paradigms um, continue to grow. And from a certain um, extent, it actually kind of makes sense because they have a lot in common from nature. They're, right, they're going right. to click like siblings do, yep. except they don't realize Indeed. they're siblings. Except they don't realize they're siblings, right? So hypothetical situation, Th- that happens. You know, two un- unbeknownst half-siblings meet each other, click, quote-unquote fall in love and, and attempt to confect a marriage. Okay, let's say years later, it comes to light, maybe because they start they start having children and these children have horrific, horrific genetic abnormalities and someone just says, hmm, wait a minute, let's see, wait, you're, you're a child of a sperm donor, you're a child of a sperm donor, um, let's run blood tests on you and sure enough, it comes to light that these two people are half-siblings. All right, so the church would look at that and say, oh yeah, these two people are closely related to each other, they had no idea, Jesus did not come to their wedding. They they have never been married and we and the church is making a public statement saying this the church recognizes the ontological reality that these people were never married. Okay? That that is what getting an annulment is. Okay? Getting an annulment is not you you married a jerk you were young and stupid, um, you decide or your spouse decides or both of you decide mutually to abandon each other. And then you go, you go slinking off to the church and say, well, you know, we got married, but it fell apart. So we want an annulment. Well, no, you, you can only have a declaration of nullity if your marriage was in fact from the very beginning invalid and thus null that's what the word annulment comes from well and i want to jump in real quick with with regard to language to even say an annulment is what you're after is to is to make annulment uh the noun here that's the thing you're trying to get whereas in reality what you're looking for is a declaration and nullity is the adjective describing it so in, in a proper sense you're looking for a declaration that it never happened as opposed to i want to go get an annulment like i want to go get a candy bar no, That's it's right. the declaration has to come from a competent authority. It's not just something as as a mere exchange like civil divorces. You know, you pay your fifty bucks, you get your certification from a judge, and and so forth. It's not like that with with the declaration of nullity. At well, it shouldn't be that way, unfortunately. But. It, that's a different topic. We'll, we'll probably get to you later. It, well, yep. <laughs> but that, that's exactly right. And I love how you brought the grammatical form into it. Is is it an adjective or is it a noun? Um, exactly. And so, yeah, that's, that's what it's basically degraded into. Um, and anyone who says, well, no, 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 uh, annulments, annulments aren't just Catholic divorce. Annulments, annulments are different. Well, I'm sorry, but the way it's be, it's being done today, and you cited the statistics at the top of the show. What did you say? 60,000 per year? Yeah. And, um, that was in the early nineties. That's 20 years ago, 25 yeah. years, could grieve 25 oh, years. Yeah. So it's probably more than that, and the two thousand seven the two thousand seven yeah. statistics were saying that uh, the uh, the U.S. Catholics, which are only six percent of the world's population, accounted for sixty sixty six percent of the world's Catholic population accounted for sixty percent of the annulments. 
declarations yeah. of nullity. I, I just I just made the, de- the the delineation and then I made the mistake, and, which is again you use the wrong word com- enough and people even people who mean yeah. to say the right thing say it wrong. So I'm, I'm that's right. I'm going to slap my wrist if I say annulment again. <laughs> well, I mean, and that's that's exactly the point. Of course, it's become since since the 1960s with this infiltration of these communists. Hello, hello. What did we just say? The first instance of no no fault divorce was done immediately after the Bolshevik Revolution. We're not just throwing the word communist around as some sort of a mindless insult. I'm telling you, the church was specifically infiltrated by communists. And one of the primary objectives of communism is to break down the family and destroy marriage. Okay? So, um, mid-1960s, communist infiltration recruit who turn around and then recruit sodomites. Um, and there was an even, I mean, you think they were strict about, um, not allowing heterosexual men into the seminaries in the U S you had the, um, sodomite pedophile Satanist, Satanist, actual practitioner of the worship of Satan, Joseph Cardinal Bernadine. He ran the American church for for years and years and years and years from the 70s until he died. I think he died in 96. He he was the 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 gatekeeper. He was the doorman and he signed off on every single man who became a bishop in the United States. Are you telling me that after everything that we've seen and how the American church has just gone to hell, that there wasn't a specific agenda to get these homosexuals, to get these sodomites into the episcopacy precisely so that they could turn around and um, and work from the inside of the church to – tear down and destroy the sacrament of marriage how do, how what would be a good way to do that number 1 hand out annulments like candy i mean before <laughs> i keep i keep referencing the kennedys and you know ted kennedy um you know dumped dumped his wife joan kennedy they were married for years and years and years and you know the kennedys all they have to do is is wave around some six figure check, some donation to the the bishop's slush fund, or you know whatever is the is the cause du jour. The Kennedys they would just wave these hundred thousand dollar quarter million donation checks around, and they they'd be handed an annulment. Well, it used to be where there was kind of a pay to play thing going on, and and people were buying these things. Now it isn't even that, and you see it with Bergoglio, with anti Pope Bergoglio. He has explicitly said that anybody who wants one is going to be able to get one, and the, the whole thing. He released a document in uh, September of 2014 that had had a list of criteria of things that would be cause for a de- for um a declaration of nullity to be issued the top thing at the top of the list was lack of faith um excuse me lack of faith is a universal condition when that document first hit i started getting emails from trad catholics faithful faithful people who were emailing me saying um 
I was nervous on the morning of my wedding. Does that mean that I had a lack of faith and therefore my marriage might be null and I've never been married all this time and my husband and I aren't really married? We've been fornicating all this time? I mean, this is so what Bergoglio did is just it's satanic. It's trying to get the notion in, get doubt into every single marriage. The last item on the list was, I'm not joking, et cetera, et cetera, dot, dot, dot. So there's a list of like six things in this list. The first is lack of faith, which covers absolutely everybody. The last item is et cetera, dot, dot, dot. Now, as, as kind of a little tangent off to the side, I was told, um, of, if, if it weren't all so horrific, it would be amusing. I was told, I was given an explanation as to why the et cetera is there. So Bergoglio is an imbecile. He doesn't write anything himself. Um, so he, he solicited this document be written up. It was submitted to him. He picked it up. He's so stupid that he doesn't even read anything. He picked it up. He leafed through it. He looked at the list of at the list of things, and the the original drafters of the document put the etc. in as the last bullet point. As you know, when you're writing a a first draft of a document like this, and you give it to the person um, that you're ghostwriting it for, you leave these placeholders inside the document where, you know, presumably the, the person who it's be, whom it's being ghostwritten for is going to insert their own, you know, whatever they want to add. The et cetera was in there as one of these first draft ghostwriter placeholders. That's all it was. And Bergoglio is so stupid. He, he doesn't even read the document. He just, he just leafs through it sees this bullet list and says, yep, fine, that's that's what I want. Publish it. Publish it exactly like this. And they say, well, well, you know, we've got this et cetera here, meaning that that's for you to add whatever you might want to add. And he says, no, it's it's fine exactly as it is. Publish it exactly like this. And that's why the et cetera is there. So the ghostwriters were just like, uh, okay, okay, if you're ordering us to publish it exactly as it is right now. We'll, we'll do that. But understand that there's ghostwriter placeholders in here. Bergoglio doesn't even care. He's that stupid. He's that stupid. And he's that evil. Um, to him, I was going to say, is it, is it stupid or malicious? Well, it's both. He's obviously both. But it, it is malicious to have a document like that. I mean, talk talk about the, the epitome of of a lack of clarity to have a document like that, promulgate it, publish it. And you've got et cetera as one of, as one of the point, as one of the bullet points, um, that would cause Holy mother church to, uh, declare that a marriage had, had never taken place and had been null from the very beginning, et cetera. That's about as bad as it gets, and that's about as malicious as it gets. You're absolutely right. We also have confirmation from the lips of Bergoglio himself when he said that he believed that more than half of sacramental marriages, I believe he said sacramental marriages, more than half of sacramental marriages are invalid. Uh, No. That's a contradiction of terms on, on the face of it. 
Yep, exactly. Because he's stupid. I mean, he that, that a contradiction in terms like that. He's so dumb, he doesn't even realize he's doing it. And then if it's pointed out to him, it, he wouldn't care. Because with these people and language, you know, wor- words don't have meaning to them. Words mean what they say they mean in the moment. And the only it's, – it's exactly ha- as, uh, as Mao – Chairman Mao, the the communist dictator of China, he said it. Words mean what we want them to mean, and the only function that they serve is to is to acquire, gain, gather, increase power. It's all about power. And so if you try to hold Bergoglio and his ilk to logical standards and and try to pin them and say, well, you said this and then you said exactly the opposite. They don't care. It's water off a duck's back. They absolutely do not care. So you can't pin them down rhetorically, basically ever. And you can't use you can't use arguments of of logic and reason against them because they they categorically reject logic and reason. And so for them to contradict themselves it, it, they they get a rush off of it because the fact that they can contradict themselves and that they they can in their own minds override logic reason things like this it just gives them all the more of a buzz you know because they they can speak out of both sides of their mouth and then they'll just watch as people accept this and not only accept it, but, you know, tell them how wonderful they are and go to bat for them and, and you know, fo- and follow them, follow them into apostasy as, as is what is unfolding before our very eyes right now. So um, it's, it's just watching it all happen. And, but we have to be just militant about this and we have to start having these incredibly unpleasant conversations with people and telling them, no, I, you know, I realize you're only 31 years old, but you, you screwed up, you screwed up. And now you have to suffer the consequences of that. And that means you're done romantically. You have a spouse, your spouse is still alive. Your spouse has abandoned you. You have abandoned your spouse. You've mutually abandoned each other. All right, you're done. If you engage in any activity that you would not engage in if you were happily married. I mean, you're, you're committing adultery. So um, I posted, did I post it? Yeah, I posted um, a, a very, very good document um, written in 1962 um, that has guidelines for people who are divorced, um, written by a redemptorist father. And he uses the term keeping company. And I really, really, really like that. Um, I think it 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 show it, it captures the spirit of what we're talking about. You know, that there are certain circumstances. I think men and women can certainly be friends with each other. But you know what? If if you presented a happily married man who let's say, left his wife sitting at home alone every night and went out and had dinner every night with his female friend. You know what? Even if the man and woman who were friends with each other never touched each other, never did 
anything physically inappropriate, that would still, I mean, I, I believe there's such a concept as emotional adultery. I, I, I still think you could make a very sound argument that that keeping company in that way would be an adulteration of the marriage. You, you can't even do things like that. You can, you can have friends and you can go out in groups and things like that, but a married man shouldn't be keeping regular company with a woman socially alone, just the two of them together. That is a form of adulteration of marriage. That's what we're talking about here. That's the level that we're talking about here. And you know what? This is why people used to not get divorced. One of the, the main reasons. Everyone understood that it, it was a scandal. It was shameful it was a sin, and it is a sin. It is a sin to abandon your spouse. Um, everyone understood this. Protestants, ev even the unchurched, even atheists, even non-practicing Christians, everyone in, in civilization up until the middle of the 1960s completely understood that this, this was a terrible thing, and you could not do it. And if you and if you did do it, um, it was it was a even greater shame to then effectively start committing public adultery by um, dating, courting, whatever you want to call it, and that to to quote unquote remarry was in fact an act of bigamy. It was bigamy to do that. Um, and so this this is something that that stopped people from getting divorced, and people persevered. And um, Super Nerd and I, before the the show, we were talking about you know effeminacy versus virility, and how people were willing to be virile and were willing to suffer through, frankly, marriages that went south. I mean, I, I can think of, you know great aunts in my family, you know, and, and the generations in my family tend to be spaced really wide. So, you know, I have great aunts and uncles that were born in the late 19th century and very, very early 20th century that in retrospect, you look back at these marriages and these marriages just descended into misery, some of them, you know, um, and you, you could conceivably find fault on both sides that that the man was cruel um but you know what you you also have to realize that for a lot of men and this happens to a lot of men today um they they marry a woman and then the woman just descends into unceasing nagging and um if i may use language just b becomes a complete bitch to her husband you know that, that happens all the time, and it, it always has happened. That has always happened. But people didn't abandon their spouse. They didn't get divorced because they understood um, that it was a sin, that it was shameful, that you were done. You couldn't get remarried if, if you were divorced. And there was also an overarching sense that, that marriage is so important to human civilization and, and human culture that it simply cannot be messed with like that. And, you know, even as as mean and cruel as people could be, it, it's it's weird to think about that they weren't as narcissistic 
as the average American is today. And that's that's really weird to think about. The other point that kind of goes hand in hand with this is um, the fact that people understood that marriage is indissoluble and divorce is just completely off the table. Um, that is what kept a lot of people chaste. It's what kept, I mean, you think about it, what would keep an 18-year-old boy who finds himself in the backseat of a Mercury with his girlfriend in 1952? What, what keeps him, what keeps both of them from, from having sex with each other? They, they have the ability, they have the opportunity. What stopped them? What's and, and let's focus on, on the boy. Let's focus on the man, this 18-year-old boy in the backseat of the Mercury in 1952 with his with his chicky poo. What stops him from from having sex with her? Well, first of all, um, the thought that if he gets her pregnant, he will have to marry her. Period. And that and that's not that isn't um, a nullifying factor either. And Bergoglio's trying to argue that it is, that if if you marry someone that you um, impregnated before, before the wedding, that that basically amounts to coercion. It does not. Coercion means someone is threatening to kill you. Would, I mean, talk about a true shotgun marriage, that you are, you are taken literally to the altar at gunpoint, and, and this is no joke. And if you refuse to go through with, with the wedding, that her father will literally kill you if you don't do this. That is coercion. That's not what we're talking about here. If, if a guy got a girl pregnant, it was the right thing to do to marry her. That, that isn't coercion. It's doing the right thing. Well, and to a and, certain extent, it was also understood. It was the, at least for the guy, it was recovering his honor to a certain respect that he's going to... Uh, right, do the right thing he, by he's her. He's going to yeah. take care of his obligations. He's not going to just turn tail and run. Exactly. And so here, here's the thought process that the 18-year-old boy has. If we do this and I get her pregnant, I have to marry her. I have to marry her. And if I marry her, that is indissoluble. And I will be married to her until death do us part. And, you know, she's she's cute or cute-ish, she's willing, she's probably or probably willing to do this. But do I like her enough? Do I really want to say that, yes, I would be willing to wake up every morning for the rest of my life next to this girl? Do, do I like her that much? And I'm telling you guys, especially people, you know, my age or, or younger, you know, early 40s or younger, I think a lot of people literally don't believe that that is the kind of thought process that a young man would have when when faced with the opportunity to fornicate. Um, I, I think that people just can't even comprehend that people would think that way. And I'm telling you guys, that's exactly what it was. Many an 18-year-old boy did not go through with it. And many people, including the men who got married up until the mid-1960s, both parties, both the husband and the wife, were virgins and lost their virginity on the night of their wedding. 
And again, people are going to roll their eyes and say, oh, you're crazy. No, no, that just isn't possible. No, I'm sorry. That is the truth. In Christian society, lots and lots and lots and lots of people, including the men, lost their virginity on the night of their wedding. Why didn't they do it before? Because it was understood that if you got her pregnant, you had to marry her. And if you were married to her, you were married to her for life. And it wasn't the the possibility of, okay, whatever, marry her and then stay married for like two years and then just divorce her. No, that was that was not even possible to the average American or or the, the mind of man in Western civilization up until basically the mid 1960s. It was just it was just unfathomable that that you would do something like that. And that was the break that kept a lot of people, and especially talking about the guys, that kept the guys from going through with it and kept them from fornicating because they would, you know, they'd look at this girl and say, I don't know if I want to spend the rest of my life with this woman. And that and that would be the end. This if I do it with her right now, it's conceivably possible that that I am locking myself in to her and only her for the rest of my life. And again, I just, you got to think about things like this. We need to talk about things like this. Talk about, talk about the way things were before the asteroid hit. Talk about how our culture functioned. Talk, talk about how people thought and how they lived their lives. Don't just narcissistically assume that the way we live in our society today with contraception, with no-fault divorce, abortion on demand, blah, 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 you, you, can't, you can't reconcile our fallen world today with a normal, decent, healthy Christian civilization. The two things do not reconcile. And so we have to be honest about the way things used to be. And beyond that, we have to say, we should all of us be working to return, to go back to the way things were. Okay? You, you say, well, no, the horse is out of the barn. Well, you know what? We, we are going to be expected to get the horse back in the barn. And if we don't do it, then it will be done for us supernaturally. And that will involve, that will involve war and massive suffering. We should at least make the attempt to get that horse back in the barn and not sit around and tell, tell ourselves that, no, it's impossible, it's impossible. With God's grace, everything is possible. And, of course, that, that doesn't uh, address necessarily the, uh, the, the case for people who aren't um, Catholics or Christians. But even so, like, like you're saying, in, in, in not that long ago, even people who were not Christians had a sense of dignity about what it is they are. I mean, the human being at a certain natural level, understands the natural law, understands their own dignity, and realizes they are not an animal, that uh, yes. you're supposed to wait for marriage for this. Yep, exactly. Um, I it's, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up about regarding oneself as an animal. Um, I actually watched today a documentary, and this is changing the subject a little bit, but um, I'm going to post it and I'm going to, I'm going to encourage everyone to watch this with this Harvey Weinstein thing that's happened. Um, I said, we did a podcast one or two podcasts ago, and I think we were talking about this. And I said, the big issue in Hollywood isn't this uh, casting couch. The big issue in Hollywood is that they're 
so many pedophiles. And so there's a really good documentary that's already been made on pedophilia in Hollywood. And it's it's really well done. And it has, it has some incredibly compelling evidence and, you know, recordings of people, um, clandestine recordings of these pedophiles made. And what one of these pedophiles um, told a boy who was recording him, getting him to admit, you know, that he had, that he had, um, uh, seduced the boy or that that's not even a word that he had, you know, basically raped this boy, um, repeatedly. And what the pedophile said to the boy is that, you know what, in the, in the animal world, anything goes only human beings are the only animals who have, and he used the word socialized, who have socialized sex and put all of these rules and regulations and laws around sex. But in if you, but what the pedophile told the boy is, is that if you look at the animal kingdom, and remember, humans are just animals, anything goes. Um, they just if they see something, if an animal sees something and is sexually aroused by it, they just go for it. That's what the pedophile said. And so that we were, he was trying to convince the boy that to not just, for him to not gratify his sexual urges on the boy and other boys was denying his his animal nature. And and that's a very common argument that's made today with regards to sex. That's that's the whole uh, reason why the the lie of evolution has been has been pushed. It's to convince human beings that they are animals, and Satan squeals with delight. Um, one of the things that one of the reasons why Satan fell is precisely because of the dignity that God imparted to man, not just by, you know, incarnating and and being born of a virgin, but then of course obviously the the going to the cross and dying for us. Um and and then coming coming to us in the Eucharist. The the intense dignity that has been bestowed upon man by God absolutely enrages Satan and the fallen angels. And so it's always a push to try to convince man that he is, that he is a beast. Um, this is a, this is a primary satanic tactic and we see it, we see it in sexual perversion. We see it. And now we see it in marriage that, you know, we're, we're all just beasts and, um, you know, marriage is just this, this social construct. And it's, it's, it's purely a function of um, the church trying to control people, blah, 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 and it needs to just be done away with entirely. Um, and that's what anti-Pope Bergoglio and his ilk and on on the secular side, you know, call it the Soros-Zuckerberg machine or whatever you want to call it. Oh, they'd be absolutely delighted to see marriage completely done away with and as we um, – um, Oh, it was. It wasn't with you. I did a. I did an interview, a quick interview with with another group a few days ago, and we were talking about precisely that, about how um, the Soros Zuckerberg machine wants everyone to be dependent upon the state, and one of the primary ways that you do that, and and communism, you know, obviously this is why communism hates marriage, is because they want everybody completely and totally dependent upon the state. 
And so long as you have marriage, then you have, you know, the family structure, you have women um, healthily being in a good sense, dependent upon their husbands, so on and so forth. So there is there is a conscious desire to break the whole thing down and just get everyone dependent upon the state. Yeah, if you can get the kids under state control as early as possible, you can shape and mold them into whatever you want. And I've heard it argued that one of the reasons why we haven't had a full-blown communist revolution here in the United States is because it hasn't been necessary through the sexual revolution and the federalization of so many things and the state taking control of so many things, especially the schools. Just wait a generation and you have everyone molded to your ideas and ideals ready to take over. You don't need to kill anyone in the process. Well, not not counting abortion. You're definitely getting a body count there. But... Um, you don't have to have the bloody revolution in the same sense. And in that respect, it's, you know, revolution 2.0, they figured out a different way to do it. That's right. I mean, so you've got, you know, uh, red China, you've got Russia where there was this violent, bloody revolution that had to take place. And for those who survive it, it's all in their living memory. Right. And so there's always this this undercurrent of counter revolution that's going on because everyone remembers what they had to do in order to get the the revolution to take place, which, you know, in Russia is, you know, murder like 45 million people. 45 million adults murdered by the state in order to get the Russian revolution to, to, to happen. Okay, you're exactly right, super nerd. They're, they're accomplishing something that is much more deeply entrenched and, um, and universally um, appreciated and gone along with. I mean, it's, it's safe to say that they've got easily half the population now fully on board with this and you don't have to you don't have to uh poison the well in the sense that every single person has had multiple family members you know killed um disappeared and killed if if you can do if you can execute the revolution without literally having to execute the people, which then just breeds counter a, a, a low-grade, seething counter-revolution amongst the people, you're way, way, way better off. And so, you know, America being the Protestant Freemasonic culture that it was, it was, it was ripe. It was ripe for this. And you see the fruits of it, you know, this... Americans are just largely incredibly enthusiastic about this this revolution that is that has gone on. And if you look at it amongst the young people who are just almost to a man, completely, completely far gone, uh, uh, try try to tell a modern American nineteen year old girl that contraceptives of all sorts should be made illegal. They should be illegal. You shouldn't be able to legally buy a condom. You should not be able to legally purchase birth control pills. It should all be made illegal. Try to have that conversation with a modern American 19-year-old girl, even a modern American 19-year-old girl who would confess to be politically to the right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, because a lot of the people in what – in what we used to call the tea, like the Tea Party faction, you know, a lot of those people are Protestants, and they they swear up and down by contraception. I spoke um, 
at a tea party thing once and unbeknownst to me, um, the guy who spoke before me was a population control uh, guru. And he gave this whole presentation about the the whole problem is that there's just way, way, way too many human beings and that we need to be going into these countries with all of these brown people and we need to be sterile, effectively sterilizing all of these people. He was a full on population control guru. And of course, I sit there and, um, you know, all these Protestant Tea Party people are sitting there nodding in agreement with everything he says. And I got up and the first thing out of my mouth, and it had nothing to do with my presentation. The first thing out of my mouth was, um, you all need to understand that everything that man said is completely and totally wrong, that contraception is mortal sin, and that you cannot commit mortal sin and expect God to bless your country, your civilization. And certainly if you are peddling and exporting mortal sin into into other cultures and and other nations this is this is a grave grave sin and you will be made to suffer and you will pay for that sin collectively as a nation um, and then I went on to say the problem in the world today is there aren't nearly enough people. There aren't nearly enough human beings being born and, and went into all that and just made sure that I planted the seeds in these people's minds that this con- that this uh, population control guy, that this was just that this was just satanic evil. Now, again, with the Tea Party, most of those people were Protestants. Were they hearing me? I don't know. I don't know if they heard me or not. But you at least have to speak up and you have to refute that stuff when it comes up. I would say at the level of pure naturalists, people who don't look at religion, you could make the argument that the Middle Ages sets the perfect template for what happens when societies get overpopulated. You had the Black Plague and that sort of settled things in a way. It cut down, what, two thirds of the population and, you know, we recovered. And, of course, Catholics would, would look at this and say, well, it, it's a blessing given to us by God. We don't, may not understand it. We may not, you know, <laughs> want to call it a blessing. But how many people realized, uh, had enough time between realizing they were uh, a few days from dying and made the, got their souls right with God and were able to go into eternity having confessed and gotten themselves right? It's that middle ground between Catholic and having no faith. That's a hard one to reach. How do you, how do you, how do you even... How do you even present something like the Black Plague as possibly being a blessing? And so, yeah, it becomes naturally a good thing to limit population because what is, what's the only other possibility for controlling it? I've never thought about that till just now, but that, it's a tricky one. Indeed, indeed. And, you know, it's, it's paragraph one of the catechism. Why, why does man exist? To know, love, and serve God in this world and to be happy with him forever in the next. And if, if you can't get past that, if you don't have paragraph one, then none of the rest of it makes any sense. Because Actually, if you, if I, I got to pick on your grammar for that one because it's 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 uh, incredibly important to know, love, and yes. serve God, so that we may be with Him in heaven in the next. Not and because the, the whole point here is it's it's not this earth is is, is not the point. I mean, you know this, you, you may have just yeah. used the wrong word accidentally, but it, it's it's you know we know, love, and serve God in order that we will be with Him in, in eternity. So the Indeed. whole point being that, you know, who cares how we leave this earth? We all are guaranteed to die. Thanks, Adam. But um, how we go out, that's going to determine our eternity. And so that's the real important thing here. I don't care how gruesome it was or how happy or unhappy you were during your life. If you leave this this planet and, and or if you leave this life in sanctifying grace, you are a success. You are an eternal hero. 
And that's all there is to it. Yeah. And if, if you're not sound on what the telos of man is and what the end of man is, if, if, if you do believe, like Bergoglio keeps saying, that, you know, when, when you die, worst case scenario is that your soul is annihilated. It just lights out, lights out. If that's, if that's what you push and that's what you believe and that's what anti-Pope Bergoglio is pushing and that's what he believes, then, you know, yeah, there's, there's no possible way that, you know, dying of a disease could ever be, um, could, could save your soul in a sense. Um, all that matters at that point is, do you have a 4,000 square foot house with granite countertops? And everybody has to have a 4,000 square foot house with granite countertops because the end of man is on this earth having the proverbial 4,000 square foot house with granite countertops. And that's all that matters. And also um, that apparently, according to these people, one of the other things that, that is the end of man and all that matters is that you get as much um, genital pleasure in whatever form that you want it and that that is a right and that and since you're basically an animal and when you die it's lights out and soul annihilation and nothing matters and there is no punishment for sin in fact there is no such thing as sin then about all a human being could do is just get as much genital pleasure as as possible and that's all that matters and, and that's how you end up where we are today. That's why we're here. Because the, the, no one is thinking about the, the four last things, which apparently Bergoglio, anti-Pope Bergoglio, just tried to essentially abrogate um, last week or so. Just said, you know, did another interview with the, um, with the atheist Freemason uh, newspaper magnet in Italy, this um, Scalfari person did another interview and basically completely did away with the four last things. Bergoglio doesn't believe in um, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. He and again reiterated that Bergoglio does not believe in in hell or eternal damnation or any of these things. And so, yeah, at that point. We are just beasts, and all that matters is earthly material um, uh, satisfaction, pleasure, et cetera, et cetera. And modern man, being being as as far gone as modern man is, is just all about hearing this. That's why anti-Pope Bergoglio is so wildly popular in opinion polls, because he is he's telling everyone exactly what they want to hear. He's telling them that they're animals. He's telling them that there's there's no standard of behavior. Do what you want. Um, there there's no hell. Don't worry about that. Um, all of these rules and regulations and all of this stuff that the church has taught infallibly for two thousand years. It's all a bunch of crap. We're the cool kids. We don't actually believe any of that bullshit. I've that's I wrote that essay years and years and years ago now. And it's it's one of the most important things I've ever written. They don't believe any of it and they they consider it it makes them an elite. It makes them a member of an elite caste and they want to try to attract other people to them precisely by saying, "Yeah, I'm I'm a 
I'm a priest in the in the Catholic Church. Heck, I'm even a bishop. I'm even a cardinal in the Catholic Church. But you understand, we're the cool kids, and we all understand that the church, all all of this stuff, this is all bullshit, and we don't believe any of it. We don't believe any of it. Come, come be in, in, in our faction. Come be in our group. Wink. Um, you know, you can do whatever you want. If you want to have, if you want to have gay sex, you can have gay sex, do whatever you want. It, it just doesn't matter, you know, you, but you need to be on side with the social justice warrior agenda. You need to be on side with this, this environmentalism racket, because that's the way that we're one of the primary ways that we're going to hold and, and, um, and generate intense amounts of secular power, coercive power is through this lie of this environmentalism and climate change and all this crap. So you need to be on side with all of that. But, you know, in terms of all this church stuff and morality, we all know that it's crap. Um, It's really sad, but um, one of the people who um, I think Bill, yeah, it was Bill Maher. Bill Maher made uh, a documentary movie called religious like ridiculous except religious um religious i think is what it was called and he was just going and you know mar is a militant atheist a complete sex pervert um and going back to a topic that we've discussed about how it's really important uh it was in the context of the milo episode that we did when we were talking about how you know you can't you can't go look at people who are living depraved lives and just because they say things that that uh are congruent with most of your platform you can't say okay this person is on side so you can never claim someone like this disgusting sodomite pro uh, pro pedophile just wretch this milo person you say oh no he's one of us he's cool he's on side no no he's not Another person that I that I was going to mention, but I don't think it ever came up, is Ann Coulter. Ann Coulter. She's a piece of work. <laughs> she she's a piece of work. You say, yeah, she says things that we would all nod our heads with and agree with, and and she's witty and all of that. This woman's personal life is absolutely depraved, and one of the people that she has openly admitted that she she fornicates with is Bill Maher. Okay, this woman has serious, serious moral problems. It, it, you're you're playing with fire if you point to her and say, "Oh no, she's totally on side." No, I mean, and look at how she goes back and forth. You know, she was, you know, pro Romney, and then oh, then she had to come clean and say, "Well, okay, Romney's Romney's a two faced loser." Then she's anti-Trump, then pro-Trump, then anti-Trump. And I mean, you know, it, she's just in it for the money, guys. She's just I think she's totally... More provoca- to- I was going to say, she's more of a provocateur and troll than even Milo. I think Milo aspires to be Ann Coulter. And yeah, if you, if you well want said. somebody, if you want somebody who is well-spoken and intelligent, who is authentically conservative and can actually articulate why, go listen to Ben Shapiro and just forget about Milo and and Ann Coulter. If you want to learn something and actually grow your brain a little bit, follow people like that uh, because you'll actually learn something. You'll actually know how to. Um, You'll, you'll learn something as opposed to just insulting um, the other side, which doesn't get you anything. If you insult the left, yeah, it's fun for five minutes, but you know that doesn't actually prove anything. It doesn't doesn't bring them around. Um, no. A solid argument will actually convert a liberal who is open to the truth. That's right. And so, um, so Ann Coulter, 
Um, it's, it's entirely appropriate to look at people's personal lives and their personal behaviors and to judge them off of that. I'm sorry, this whole, who am I to judge and you can't judge this? You can't, well, uh, that's, that's insane. Of course you should. Ann Coulter not only fornicates, but fornicates with some truly despicable people. And so it's entirely appropriate to look at that and judge her by her actions. So going back around, um, Bill Maher makes this movie, um, which in which he's just trying to debunk all religion because he's a, he's a militant atheist, and he comes to Rome. And of course, who does he find? But he finds uh, Reginald Foster, Father Reggie Foster, who's this Latinist, um, you know, widely reputed to be one of the greatest Latinists on the face of the earth. Many, many, many people, including many, many people in Tradyland, studied under him and would even could very easily easily be called disciples of this Reggie Foster. This Reggie Foster is just an odious, odious human being. Um, he's a priest. Uh, I I don't know if he even says mass anymore. He never wears clerics. Hates the priesthood hates the church, gives Bill Maher this interview in which he says, oh yeah, all, all the church's, you know, um, sexual morality teachings, that's all crap. And I've, I have heard directly from people who studied under Reggie Foster, who said that he would regularly tell his students of both sexes that the church's teachings on the sixth commandment were all bullshit and all nonsense and that they, sh- he, actively encouraged his students to fornicate both heterosexual and he would he would encourage um he would encourage males to engage in sodomy go to the gay bars do what you want he he would encourage his students to do that there's a lot of trads running around who say "Ooh, reggie foster this reggie foster that Reggie Foster, it, oh my goodness, if if that man, and he's he's not in good health, he's in incredibly poor health, if Reggie Foster dies unrepentant of of what he's done and and what he has said and the damage that he has done to people, including driving young men who were his students into the Rome gay bar scene, I mean, think about that and ratifying them in their sexual perversion and encouraging them in their sexual perversion. If Reggie Foster dies unrepentant of that, oh, 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 man, wow. And remember, he's a priest, too. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's terrifying to think about. And so you, you have to, you, you have to be really careful and you have to, you know, judge people by their actions and so forth. And we have to just categorically detach ourselves from and openly reject these people who are doing things like this, who are just contributing to the, to the absolute downfall, not only of the church, but of, of society in general. Well, another point to consider here too, and and we mentioned um, by name, uh, Blessed Bartolo Longo on a previous podcast yeah. and this was a kid who was who was born kid I should say he he, he was uh, a, a very pious Catholic as a kid and uh, when he went to college he was still apparently still Catholic but through uh, bad 
bad circumstances or, or bad companions found himself at a seance where he was talking, well, he's talking to a demon is who he's talking to. And he asked, are the commandments of the church true? Are the Ten Commandments true? And the demon says, yeah, except for the sixth. And at that point, his life, you know, he decides, okay, well, if the sixth commandment's not not um, not true and valid, then let me go indulge. And that was the first step to him falling into outright Satanism and becoming a satanic priest. You know, fast forward to the end of the story, he converted through uh, the rosary, actually. And he's a blessed now and, and uh, in a sane world would be on track for canonization. But the point being is when you have a priest here who is who's point blank saying, you know, the the Sixth Commandment and, and the prohibitions against sex and the regulations, that that's all, you know, meaningless anymore. I every time I hear that, I immediately think that's that's got to be straight up satanic because you, you can't look at the ten at the Ten Commandments and say, well, nine out of ten is good. Ninety percent still an A. No, it, it's it's a flat out zero if you deny one of them. So you either take it all or you take none of it. And if you take none of it, you're not going to like the next world. But it, mentioning that the story of uh, Father Foster um, telling people that the the sixth commandment doesn't apply, it just makes me think of that that story and in the that that's an entry to it toward the toward the satanic. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, I mean, I, I could go on. And there's we've discussed on the podcast before. There absolutely is Satanism inside the Vatican, and we're not. Again, not just throwing that around as as just a flippant pejorative. That inside the Vatican, there are priests, bishops, cardinals who actively engage in the worship of Satan and in black masses and all of this stuff. And um, I'm sorry, but the number one recruiting ground for Satanists in the world is the Rome gay bar scene. Why? Who's in the Rome gay bar scene? Uh, priests and seminarians. That, and that's who they want. That's exactly who they want. So Foster was just driving people into that. And um, it, I think it is, it is entirely reasonable to believe. And I have been told that there, are, there is credible suspicion that former student disciples of Reggie Foster actually are involved in Satanism inside the Vatican. Um, I don't know if, if Foster himself ever had any connections to Satanism. Um, directly obviously the things that he said were were satanic they were the spirit of satanism uh, but the actual practice of satanism i don't know if, if foster himself was ever involved in that but i have been told that there is credible suspicion that student disciples of reggie foster um are connected to satanism inside the vatican so there you go hardcore stuff people hardcore stuff but it has to be talked about and it has to be dealt with and we can't just wait for the uh, Triumph of the Immaculate Heart to start making things right. Uh, the The topic for this show has been annulments, and you know one of the one of the cases where where even good meaning priests in some cases will say, "Well, you should you know seek seek a uh, decree of nullity for your marriage." Is in a case where a spouse abandons you, and there are there is there's a really good uh, website I'd like to recommend. It's uh, Mary's Advocates, run by a, a lady named Babe McFarland. Her husband abandoned her, and and I just want to read their their vision statement to strengthen marriages reduce unilateral no-fault divorce, and support those who have been unjustly abandoned by their spouse. Um, I think we mentioned on a previous podcast, or I might, I might have mentioned it, or you might have mentioned it, that when when a couple gets married, it's three people involved. It's, it's the husband, the wife, and, and God himself. So yeah. when one of the spouses walks away, you still have two out of three there. So in terms of the the ability to still get the sacramental graces, the the supernatural graces, I mean, marriage is an awesome thing. Just by remaining alive and married, you get supernatural grace. How cool is that? 
just just yeah. on the face of it. How cool is that? And it's the institution that preceded all the rest of the sacraments when you think about it that way too. Adam and Eve, they were mm-hmm. married directly by God. That was before the need for uh, confession or baptism or anything because there wasn't sin yet. So that that's how amazing uh, marriage is. And it's it's no secret that when in the Gospels, uh, the, the analogy of, of, you know, of marriage being to uh, the situation of, of, of eternity in heaven, uh, of, of Jesus and the bridegroom. But the point being that um, if, if you've been unjustly abandoned, you still, by being faithful to your, your marriage, even if your spouse isn't, you still get sanctifying grace through the state of, uh, through the state of, your, of your vocation. It's a tougher road to be sure. But uh, just because your spouse abandoned you, that third party in the marriage hasn't. That's right. That's exactly right. And I think what we should probably wrap up on is um, an email came in. And this this is an absolutely good and valid question. It's, you know, for all, all of these people, these 60,000 a year in the United States who have gotten these rubber stamp um, decrees of nullity. Um, so... The, the the argument is well you know if the if the church has done this then it must be valid um, and I, I I I that is not the case there are obviously obviously mistaken uh, nullity decrees that have been issued in fact just looking at the numbers common sense tells you that there are an enormous amount of mistaken nullity decrees that have been issued and again it goes back to what we started at the beginning of the podcast talking about is a failure to understand what annulment is what a declaration of nullity is it's saying that there was never ever a marriage ever it's not an ontological change in the state of a married couple it's that They were never married to begin with. And so I found a quote that sums up and explains very, very well this situation about all of these people who are running around, especially in the United States because of the enormous numbers of rubber stamp uh, decrees of nullity that have been issued, who, who have been told by these infiltrators of the church that their marriage was null when in fact it wasn't, how, how do you respond to that? What What is the answer to that? And here's the quote. And um, there's, I can't cite the author because it was um, left as a comment underneath another, um, underneath an article that was written. And the author of the comment, you know, it's, it's an anonymous, an, an anonymous handle. So I can't even, I can't even say the person's name or thank them. Just whoever you are, thank you for writing this because it sums it up beautifully. And here's the quote, quote, an objectively mistaken nullity decree has no power to dissolve a marriage. This is because the church has no power to dissolve a valid consummated marriage. Hence, it can't delegate it to its ministers. This means that if a marriage is erroneously declared null, it's still as valid as ever. However, a person relying in good faith through no fault of his own on a mistaken decree of nullity does not sin. This is because there is no knowledge of the objective character of the bigamous character of the attempted marriage in other words, the person doesn't know he's still bound by the previous marriage, unquote. And I thought that was that was very helpful. 
there's a lot of people running around right now who think that their that their quote unquote first marriage was declared null and and was null. They think it was null because it was declared null, but because the church is, has been infiltrated, um, that that decree of nullity is objectively mistaken. Um, you know, the the thing to always remember is that a our, our Lord is a person, and b he's he's not a jerk. Um, he he's not he's not trying to trick anybody into going to hell or anything like that. And so yeah, I think there are a lot of people who have been victimized by these wretched infiltrators of the church, um, who who do have mistaken degrees of nu- uh, decrees of nullity, but. There, when they go to their particular judgment, well, of course, our our blessed Lord is going to take that all into account. And you know, yes, you can see that that these people were relying in good faith, and they didn't realize that Holy Mother Church had been infiltrated by these filthy wretches, these communists, and these sodomites who are actively trying to destroy marriage. Um, the sodomites want to destroy it just out of pure spite. Um, and these people, they, they didn't, they didn't realize what was going on. And so they, they have these mistaken degrees of nullity. Of course, our blessed Lord will take all of that into account. Of course he will. Um, don't, don't ever forget that. You know, it's (laughs) God is God. I mean, he's, he's not gonna, he's not going to look at a situation like that and just say, well, I'm sorry, my hands are tied. You have to go to hell. If the person really in good faith, um, didn't know, didn't understand, and really trusted, sadly, trusted uh, bishops that that not only should no one trust, but bishops who, who, truth be told, um, should should be laicized and and in in a in a culture in which Jesus Christ is is the sovereign king, the code of law would would allow for these people to be actually prosecuted for what they have done, and some of them have committed capital crimes because precisely because of the damage that they have done to souls and the scandal that they have caused. Um, so laicization and even even trying them on. Uh, un- under under capital offense codes, um, in in a sane world where Jesus Christ was a sovereign king, yeah, that's exactly what we would be doing. But of course, that's that's not the situation right now, and that situation won't reemerge until after the triumph of the Immaculate Heart, and hopefully after the triumph of the Immaculate Heart, such such horrors won't be even in consideration for a good long time. That is certainly the hope, and um, that doesn't mean, like I said, we we don't have to wait for the triumph to uh, have everything corrected. We certainly can pray for it. We can certainly give a kind word of instruction and enlightenment to those who don't know and um, take it from there. That's right. And you can, you can still do good. People can still turn their lives around, but they need to hear the truth. And so that's, that's why we keep speaking the truth and, and not going to back away from it, not going to shy away from it and say, well, you're not going to make any friends that way. Uh, I think you'd be surprised. I think you'd be surprised. The truth is always attractive. I, I keep saying this over and over and over again. That's why I keep talking about all these horrible things and get a steady stream of emails from people saying, um, I'd like to enter the church. Where do you recommend that I go, even after hearing me do nothing but sit around and talk about all of these horrors about this infiltration. 
the truth is always attractive, even when it's even when it's horrible, it's attractive. So it, why would we think it's any different with regards to marriage? We need to tell people the truth. And I think I think there's a lot of people out there, including a lot of trads who just don't have any faith that if you just tell people the truth, that good fruits will come from it. And so that's kind of been the the objective of this of this project. And there's more to say. Um, there's other tangents to go off on. Um, another tangent that I want to address, and I'll do it in writing on the blog, is I got a really good email from a person who said, okay, um, before my wife and I, I don't know if it was converted or reverted, um, my wife got a tubal ligation. Very, very common problem now in in the post-Christian West is both men and especially now women who have been physically sterilized by their own choice and how to deal with that. And I, I've got some thoughts on that. And there's things, there's things that you can do. Obviously there is, there is a solution to all of that. Um, and so I'll address things like that, but it's, you know, just bringing up these questions that are related to marriage and so forth. And then those lead to other questions. And the more we can get, get this information out and get people talking about it, the, the better it is. And quit waiting around, man. If there's, if there's one thing that we should all feel like a ton of bricks weighing down upon us is that you just cannot assume that we have all kinds of time. You know, if you, if there's something that needs to be said and there's something that needs to be done, it needs to be done right now because we, none of us can say how much longer we have. Um, you know, it's, I, I, I guess you could analogize it to 9-11. You know, those people woke up on that morning and they had no idea. They didn't realize that they only had a few more hours left to live. And that's almost kind of the sense that we should be looking at things. We can't assume that we have decades and decades and decades in front of us. We might. We all might die completely natural deaths in old age. But then again, we might not. Um these these days are are clearly the days of Fatima. Something's coming to a head. Something's going to happen. Whether it's the outbreak of hot war, whether it's a supernatural intervention, um, whatever it is, it it seems pretty clear that something's going to happen. And this presumption that we're we're all living under that oh no we can put that off and we can talk about that later. No, we can't. We have to talk about this stuff right now and with with urgency. It seems to me with extreme urgency. So we'll keep going we'll keep doing it do your prepping of the soul first and then all your guns and food at second that's right exactly well i think that's a podcast i think it's a podcast if you have uh, questions comments feedback or any other communication you'd like to send the email address is podcast at barnhart.biz this podcast is produced by super nerd media if you found value in this episode and would like to return some you can do that at supernerdmedia.com slash donate I'd like to re- thank a couple of recent donors, Stephen, who sent a donation by PayPal, and Margaret and Lance, who found the address on the website and mailed in a donation. Thank you very much for your generosity. Also, a general reminder that Anne's, um, the masses for Anne's benefactors are set on Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, as well as a weekly requiem. Please remember to join your intentions with these masses. And we had lots of good news and <laughs> encouraging thoughts in this episode. Uh, any final parting thoughts, Anne? Um, just a reminder, don't forget to pray for the priests who are offering those five masses, um, two of which, two of those priests are deployed to the Middle East. So remember, pray for those good priests who are doing this. Um, 
also don't forget, and I'm still doing it, the Matthew 1720 um, initiative. Um, I'm full fasting Tuesdays and Fridays. And if you need to logistically move that either on one day or, or, or another, oh yeah, no problem. But basically the gist of it, fasting two days a week for um, uh, diplomatically stated a complete and total resolution to the Bergoglio situation. Um, so I'm doing that and I've I've been able to do that all along so far now. So, and I, I highly recommend fasting. It's a very good and salutary thing, um, both physically and spiritually. So, um, don't forget the Matthew seventeen twenty initiative. And as always, thank you all so very much. Um, obviously, having having printed that uh, the marriage piece earlier this week and having it, it was disseminated and went viral pretty intensely. Um, lots of Facebook traffic on that one. Um, it, it, and it's still, it's still going. My, my, um, my stats are still in a state of, of spike. They're definitely above average. Um, and yes, more, more donations came into me this week and, um, I'm, I'm incredibly, incredibly grateful. Um, not just to those people, but to one and all always thank you all so very much for your, for your support financially, um, it's, it's just an amazing thing and it's humbling and you're giving me little pieces of your life. You're giving me little pieces of your time as you've worked through your lives and you say, well, I'm going to give Anne two hours of my life, of my work life right here. And that's just, believe me, I understand the gravity of this. I understand it well, and I am eternally grateful and hopefully, hopefully these masses that are being said, and if there's any priests out there who want to get a, get in, we've got four masses per week being said for my benefactors. And obviously I'd like a mass said every day for my benefactors. So if there's any priests out there who would be willing to commemorate my benefactors on, um, especially Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, because we have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Um, it seems to me that just about the, the greatest thing that I can give back to my benefactors aside, you know, I, I pray for my benefactors at mass every day and so on and so forth. But boy, to have the Holy sacrifice of Calvary offered for, for you while you're yet alive, that's, that's one of the most powerful things that can happen. And to think that it could be happening every single day, um, for, for all of these people. I mean, it's the, the, obviously my life has not turned out how I would have thought it would, but, um, boy, if, if I can, if I can do that, if I can do that, if I can have all these masses said for, for so many people, um, and have the graces flowing from, from those masses, that seems to be a, a, a pretty high accomplishment in life. And, uh, it, it kind of makes, you know, the way things turned out in terms of my professional life and, and all of that, it kind of kind of makes it pale by comparison. So there it is. Thank you all so very much. So until next time, I am Super Nerd. And I'm Anne. Thanks, guys. God bless. God bless.